I'm very excited to welcome to the Leah Andrews Show, Lorraine Wilcox. She's an acupuncturist, author, translator of old books. She's a professor of acupuncture and an all-around amazing woman. So I'm really excited to have you here today. Thank you, Lorraine, for being here. Thank you. I appreciate you asking me. So what really got me interested in you was your Facebook posts, because you have these posts where you go through and remake these ancient formulas by the book, how they used to make them. And that's something that fascinates me. I love to cook and I love our medicine. So it's something that, that really fascinated me. What got you initially interested in going back to these source texts and, and remaking them the, the old way? I guess it was when I was doing my dissertation, um, I eventually decided to do it on Mach Sebastian. And uh -huh. one of the things I found was really interesting was that in modern books, it's treated like such a small thing, but in ancient times, there were so many ways of doing it. It just seemed really fascinating, but to write about it, I kind of figured out to, to translate it, I had to like really understand what were they doing. I've really found if I translate something that I haven't tried, I'm more prone to error. So mm -hmm. I just started experimenting to figure out what were they talking about. And I really liked that aspect of uh, trying to bring to life some of the old ways. Even some are still usable and some are not, but it was fun trying to figure it out. So actually that curiosity is what got you to learn Chinese, because you learn Chinese on your own, just tr by translation. By obsession, yes. Wow, that's amazing, really amazing. It's better than doing crossword puzzles every uh -huh. <laughs> And so, and then you, another book that you wrote more recently was this, uh, it was a Dr. Tan, it was a, a female physician. I and, guess. Yes, and because there was an issue with modesty um, in at least part of Chinese history where men, male doctors had very limited access to female patients. So there were these female doctors that w were there to treat the female patients. At least with the upper classes, there was a lot of separation of the sexes. Um, okay. So you could, a woman could only have close contact with a male relative, but not other males. And how long was this for? Because the, the Confucianist, uh, influence became stricter in more recent in more recent history. Correct? It w was this throughout all of our medicine? Um, you know, back to the, the Han Dynasty, or was this something that was just more recent? This this strict separation. I'm actually not an expert on you know all of this kind of history, but it did become worse in later times. Or I guess that's a value judgment. It became. Yes. <laughs> you know, differentiated in later times. And in part, I think maybe after, in the UN dynasty, of course, that was a foreign rule. And I think from the time that foreigners started being able to conquer China, they, the Chinese men became more protective of the Chinese women. So there was more, you know, separation. Then. And that brings up all sorts of issues because it's men who are pr primarily writing the histories. Yes. So, and they are the ones, and they couldn't even talk to women directly. So that's going to limit their understanding of us, correct? And so, well, of course, they'd have close contact with their wives and right. daughters and, 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 you know, their concubines and so forth. So they would have 
you know, some kind of experience, but a lot of the male doctors, when they were treating upper-class women, mm -hmm. the woman might not even be there. The husband might come to explain her symptoms or if they went together or if the doctor visited the house, the husband would answer the questions and the woman would just sit there while she was being discussed. Wow. I imagine, I'm just trying to think of now, you know, men in my life trying to explain what I experience to another man, how that would go. That would be very interesting. Of course, the women were socialized differently, so they may not have loved it, but they don't react the same way probably that we do because we've grown up differently. Right. And I'm just imagining what that, what gets lost in that translation, because if as a woman, you're conditioned not to speak up much. And then a, a man in your life is then trying to explain your experience to another man, how that must, in the yeah. end, translate. It must be very interesting. But a very high virtue was modesty. And so the women, from what I've read, not only from medicine, but for other things, that if you value modesty, this is really what you want. Yeah, right. Not to have to speak. Yes. And so what was the big difference that you noticed between this feminine voice that you were translating in Dr. Tan um, and the book is called Miscellaneous uh, Records, of Re female. Records of a Female Doctor. I'm sorry. Yes. And so just to get the book title out there because it's an excellent book. But um, what was the difference between her, her voice and what most of what we read during that period? It's, some of it's a little hard to tell because, you know, it was a very short book and it was 31 cases without any theoretical discussion. And so, um, you know, there's so many male writers and then just a very small amount of, of writing from this woman. So a comparison is a little bit hard, but basically in her writing, she was very, very humble. And she, you know, in the introduction was always using the most humble kind of language. Um, and, but when she talked about her patients, like it was commonly believed that women were more emotional than men. And this in fact may be true, but in any case, that's the assumptions. The males who wrote cases about women would say, you know, oh, women are so emotional. She <laughs> had this condition because of her emotions and then move on. And when she wrote about it, she'd say, well, you know, because she was unable to have a baby, then her husband felt he needed to get a concubine. And so she was really depressed and she felt she couldn't, um, you know, fight with that. And, and so even if she was emotional, even if it was acknowledged that she was emotional, there were reasons that were considered to be valid. You know, like Dr. Tan heard these patients instead of just saying, oh, women are so emotional. Right. <laughs> yeah, there was a very interesting line from Sim Simi. I don't, I don't remember exactly, but it was, it was basically he was kind of overwhelmed, I guess, with the, the depth of women's emotions and how it messes up our bodies. <laughs> beyond what he can understand. So, I, I mean, I think he's, there se were several doctors who were kind of overwhelmed by the depth of our emotional life. Um, what I think is interesting though, because you also teach on the, how unmarried women, which means women who are not sexually active, that's what that mean, meant, 
in that time, nuns, widows, this idea about how sexuality is treated with women versus men. It's, it's very different, correct? Yes, um, although this wasn't, this is not a thread of thought that you find in, discussed in every book, but you can find it like, you know, every couple centuries, some doctor wrote about it some more. And so this isn't from Tan's book, by the way. Um, but there's this concept that actually goes back to the Han dynasty that unmarried women, the first story was a, a case study in a history book about a, a palace woman. I guess she was some kind of servant in the emperor's palace. And she had a condition that was described as being because she desired a man she could not have. <laughs> um, and um, it's really kind of curious because I wonder if the doctor actually, if she told the doctor that somehow I doubt it. I, I'm kind Probably of thinking not. that's not the way, you know, the women in the Han dynasty would interact with their doctors, but she had a condition which seemed to include amenorrhea and um, he felt her pulse and because of some special stuff in the pulse and because he knew she was a palace woman, he said that was the cause of her problem. And then it was quite a few hundred years later, but other doctors started writing about cases that they felt were similar that came from widows because widows were supposed to be chaste and not remarry and nuns who were Buddhist nuns who were not supposed to marry. And then even later people started adding in like um, young girls who were maybe past menarche, but not yet married. And so these, this category of women who didn't have a man in their life, um, were prone to special conditions and there were mm -hmm. photos written for this and so forth. Well, what I thought was interesting though, it's not what we would think in modern times we're like, oh, these women were, you know, they had a libido that wasn't fulfilled. It was from what I, I read of your notes was that it was this, that women wanted to get pregnant. There was this overabundance of blood that made them desire a baby. So they didn't talk about sexual desire the same way they talk about men's sexual desire, correct? In actually some of them, it seemed to be based on longing and desire. They used a term that could be translated as longing and desire. Okay. And some of them, they did talk more about um, her needing, wanting to be pregnant and mm -hmm. so forth. Um, but even today, I'm sure you run into women who are just long to be pregnant. You yes. know? Some women do and other women long for a relationship and other women are fine without it. And of course the relationship doesn't have to be with a man, mm -hmm. um, but they, I think, didn't conceive of any substitutes. <laughs> right. <laughs> but it's interesting because if you go back in kind of the early recorded history, there was this acceptance of bisexuality that I, I oh, go ahead. I'm sorry. I think there always was a fair amount of that as long as the person would get married and reproduce to okay. make descendants. Um, but I don't think at any point they would have been very happy with someone who was just having a relationship with someone else of their own sex 
and not having descendants. Okay, so that was the big thing. As long as you fulfill your obligations of producing male heirs, then you can do whatever you want in your in your downtime, I guess. Is that correct? <laughs> I think that may be the case, although they wouldn't necessarily go public with it. Right, right. That won't be the case. And if you remember that often, even when women were sequestered, then like these were, you know, multi-generational houses that had you know, sisters-in-law, more sisters-in-law, and they were all living together in the women's quarters. They didn't sleep with their husbands every night. They had their own area in the women's quarters. And so I'm sure there was a lot of stuff going on in the women's <laughs> quarters, and some of them might have been much happier that way than when their husband came to visit them. But it wasn't something that we went public with. Mm -hmm. <laughs> right. So, because there are some obvious biases in a lot of what we read, because a lot of what we read is in, in a masculine voice, how has that affected how you interpret our, our texts and how you practice the medicine with, with female patients? Um, you should know that I'm not in practice. Um, I have had a practice in the past, but right now I teach and translate. And okay study and stuff like that so um and when i had a practice it was with people with hiv and aids so i oh, had okay. three female patients and about like hundreds of male patients okay <laughs> um so it's not been a practical area for me but it's definitely been an interesting area of research well, and then so in terms of when you're teaching your students, have you felt the need to kind of um, add some information to what you're teaching to make it more inclusive of women's experiences? Do you feel like there's things need to be adjusted um, because of our different view of gender that we have nowadays? Yeah, I definitely do both in terms of bringing out some of the ancient ideas about women that are less well known and then sometimes making fun of them and sometimes uh -huh. saying, oh, we need to consider this. And then also taking into account, you know, modern um, gender issues and modern people's preferences being able to be out in the open and so mm -hmm. forth. So yeah, I definitely think we need to modernize the cultural aspect and to some degree the medical aspect. What do you think, what have you come across that was kind of like the most egregious kind of uh, dismissal of women's experience that you've, you've in your translations and in what you've read? Well, in the introduction to Tanya Chin's book, The Miscellaneous Records of a Female Doctor, mm -hmm. One of the introductions, and I forget if it's, I forget which one, but one of the introductions that was written or prefaces written by, you know, you'd get a relatively well-known person to write the preface. And mm -hmm. one of them said, um, gee, having women treat women, it's a great idea. It's kind of like um, the old military thing that, like, if you need to fight barbarians, you best get barbarians to fight the other barbarians. You know? <laughs> That's great. Right. So women treating women are like barbarians fighting barbarians. That's wow. What okay. <laughs> wow. And he thought that was a compliment. When he uh huh. Wow. That's interesting. <laughs> <laughs> and have you found something that was kind of the opposite that you thought was actually surprising um, to see a male 
scholar or, or, or physician who actually saw women a little bit deeper than what was socially normal? I'm thinking, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> That's a harder question, okay. <laughs> well, you know, lately, the, the book that's coming out next is called An Outline of Female Medicine, and it was written by a doctor named Shui in the 1500s. Mm -hmm. And um, it, he puts in a lot of case studies. They're short, but there's still, you know, a couple hundred case studies um, in the book, so that makes it interesting. But one of the things that's interesting about him is that um, even though he has some of the standard attitudes you would expect him to, but he talked to midwives and he liked some of the ideas that some of the midwives had. And if you read throughout the old books, you know, midwives were women and midwives were often illiterate and midwives were you know, not doctors and they were not scholars. And so they were looked down upon by the scholarly medicine as kind of a necessary thing because those scholar doctors weren't going to get their hands all messy with, you know, women giving birth. They might want to be in the house and supervise at the time, but they weren't going to touch that stuff, you know? And um, so, but the fact that Shweji, um you know, took some ideas from some of the midwives and said, oh, th this midwife told me such and such, um, actually showed that he listened to some women professionals and took into account their experience. Wow. Um, he also criticized some of the stuff that some midwives had done, but you could tell that he was like open to learning from these women professionals. So <laughs> that impressed me. Mm -hmm. Okay. <laughs> and as a scholar, what do you think feel like is the most important thing in your role as, as a teacher to the next generation of acupuncture students? What what are you most passionate about making sure that they get from your classes? Oh, well, there are a few things. Um, one might be that our medicine is a philosophical medicine and we're not just technicians and it's not just what points do you use for this, but to understand the philosophy and, and the operating system of our medicine so that you can think in terms think fluently in terms of the medicine so it's not just what points to treat mm -hmm. whatever condition um, another thing that i always try to emphasize is starting from my basic theories classes is that um the old books tell us that heaven and earth is a big taiji and the human body is a small taiji or the human body is a small heaven and earth and i really try to get them to see the imagery of heaven and earth within the body and to understand that whatever processes happen outside there, also there are parallel processes that happen inside of us. And I think if you can get that concept, you could figure out just about anything um, by sitting by a river and watching how water flows or feeling the wind or something like that. So those are some important things. And I guess the third Thing that I would say is to always be curious and to keep learning and never think that you're done. Yes. I think that's true about life in general. It should be, <laughs> right? <laughs> and what kind of, what do you not feel 
very happy about in terms of the acupuncture community that you see around? What are some things that you feel are not going in, in the best direction? Or is there anything that you feel isn't going in, in the best direction right now? Seems to me there's two directions the medicine's being tugged in. And one is kind of like integrated medicine and evidence-based medicine, evidence-based being defined as a certain very specific type of evidence. Um, and the other direction is like towards classical literature um, or at least pre-modern literature. And I'm obviously on the side of the pre-modern literature. Um, and it's not that I think that science, Western science has no place, but I think that we've swung too far in one direction and that um, I'd really like to see people more curious about the roots of our medicine and how the ancient doctors thought. And I think that we're actually not getting the best of our medicine when we kind of you know, make a stew out of Western medicine and Chinese medicine. And, um, yeah, I, that's the thing. And so a lot of the conversations I see on Facebook on certain acupuncture related groups are kind of low level thinking and people want to use a little bit of everything rather than going deeply into our medicine. They want to, you know, use homeopathy and aromatherapy and this and that and something else and something else and there's nothing wrong with any of that stuff but it's like our medicine is so different. I don't know I, I would rather see people focus on going deep than going broad. Yes I understand what you're saying and I also my experience is that Facebook acupuncture groups are the best place to get in a fight <laughs> without intending to at all. <laughs> yeah even the scholars group <laughs> but we all have liver chi and it gets expressed on Facebook. It does, let me tell you. Um, so what if, because a lot of us, when we're practicing, we don't have a whole lot of free time. What are the most important classical texts for a clinician to study and have, have an understanding of, in your opinion, if you have limited time? If, your time is so limited that you can't even do some reading. I think you don't have a balanced life. I'm not well, you. Yeah. Yes. But I mean, um, like, where, where, should, where should you start? I mean, what, what do you think are the most important classics? Well, obviously, Huang Di Nijing. And, you know, whether you're an herbalist or an acupuncturist, Suwen is really the operating system of our medicine. There's some chapters that I'm sure you could skip over and not miss too much. And there are other chapters that would just change the way you see the world. Right. Um, so that's one thing. But that's not a book that you just rush through and read. That's a book that you read a few paragraphs each night and kind of meditate on it while you're going to sleep. Um, it's hard. I mean, I, I'm less of an herbalist, and so I know, you know, there's a big Shanghai movement, and uh, I appreciate that, but that's not a movement that I'm personally participating in. I know that's heresy for me to say that. <laughs> well, I, I, I actually feel a little bit uncomfortable with just um, becoming too focused on one single classic. I think that, that it's important to kind of get a feeling for you know, kind of that whole arc of, of how, how our medicine has come about. I mean, I think that's, everybody has added something to it. So 
yeah, setting some posts. Yeah. Sorry. Okay. I think the reason I like the Ming Dynasty is because, you know, that's much later. Like, I hang out in the 1500s and 1600s when okay. I came. And um, <laughs> you know, that all those doctors knew everything that came before really well. And then they had their own, you know, 1500 years to work out the details. And so it's a lot more detailed, and a lot more kind of practical, but it still is philosophical. And, and um, I don't know, I just fit well into that time period. As okay. Translating and, and liking what I read. Very interesting. Now, I, I do feel like one of, like you said, that our medicine is going to different directions. For those of us that want to go deeper with a medicine, I do feel like starting to learn to read Chinese is a big hurdle, but it's something that we need to start doing. We need to just get over it and start doing. For mm -hmm. those of us who want to, to start spending more time with that, where do you recommend starting? First off, I don't think everybody has to, but I think that as Western people who live in the West who are acupuncturists, I think we need a critical mass of people who do that yeah. so things are translated and everyone has access even if they don't read the Chinese themselves mm -hmm. or Japanese or Korean. Um, but as far as starting, I mean, you guys are fortunate in that when I started, everything was like books. And now there's so many tools, apps, and, and you know, electronic tools. And I used to have to type out every text I wanted to work in. And now you can find the electronic versions of everything. And you can put it in these programs and hold your cursor over each character and find out the opinion and kind of definitions. You still have to be able to digest it and figure out the grammar and what does it mean. But it's so much easier today than um, I don't really know how to where to start, but I would say if you wanted to start on your own, um, I would start with things like herbal formulas or um, individual points or or like bunsao stuff because there's a repeated like let's say if you're doing bunsao, you're going to see acrid and warm or you know sweet and bitter and and cool you're going to see the same words repeated again and again, and it's not going to be deeply philosophical, which even if that's what I want, but in the beginning, it's better to start with much more like practical, yeah. and then you get some of the grammar, you could work your way into more mm -hmm. philosophical stuff. But, you know, for an herb, you know, Huanglian, it's bitter, it's cold, it clears heat, drains damp, you can start reading that stuff pretty quickly mm -hmm. and still get some some insights that you don't get from English. Okay. So what was the big change for you when you started to read this material in the original language? Obviously you had a, a, access to information that wasn't available in English, but even the translated material, when you, when you started reading it in the native language, what was the big shift that happened for you with that? It's a little hard to explain, but the way I can maybe best explain it is like, you know, in the Wizard of Oz, when it starts out all in black and white, and suddenly she's in Oz and it's in color. I yeah. mean, there's just so much more like high resolution, so much more. Okay. Suddenly, something takes on a meaning that you didn't quite catch before. Um, but I've always, <clears throat> excuse me, I've always liked words, um, and so 
it to me it's something that I really enjoy. Like for example, you know the phrase release the exterior. Mm -hmm. um, the word J that means release, that's translated as release, actually can mean to liberate, like when um, you know, Paris was liberated from the Nazis. So mm -hmm. releasing the exterior is like liberating it from these evils that have invaded. I mean, doesn't that add just a something that's much more intense and, and mm -hmm. precious. And one of the things I find is that when a lot of people translate, they try and make it sound pseudoscientific. So they take away all of that intensity of the yeah. word and make yeah. it sound like they're imitating, like they're Western science wannabes, you know? Right. And, um, I would rather hear about the liberation of the exterior than mm -hmm. to make it sound bland and, and neutral, you know? Well, I think that's a really interesting part of our medicine because the, the scholar physician was someone who was, had an appreciation for art and for all of these other things. Oh, just like even like um, talking to Chinese people a few generations ago, they used to have to not only know their characters, but write them in a pretty way. So there was this right and left brain integration that I don't think we value in the West, at least not in not serious um, disciplines. You know what I mean? It, it's um, so I think that we feel like as Western practitioners, we have to downplay that whole philosophical artistic part because it's less valid, right? In in terms of a, of, a, of the Western healthcare system. Yes. Yeah, I think there's poetry in, in a lot of our medicine, of course, the poetry is in the more philosophical parts, mm -hmm. generally speaking, which are harder to translate. And it's definitely hard to make the poetic nature come through in English, especially because mm -hmm. I'm a very linear and logical person. I'm not so, let's see, I'm left-brained because I'm logical, okay? Uh -huh. So it's hard for me to have that poetry come through, but it can evoke feeling and I think that's pretty amazing but like reading you know CAM you don't evoke a lot of feeling no boredom. <laughs> so and why is that philosophy and that emotion important in medicine I mean because it's about life you know uh I don't know. I mean, it's it's it just is a different way of looking at the world and at the body, and I don't have a good answer. But I, to me, it speaks to me in a way. Plus, clinically, it works, you know. <laughs> but it also speaks to me in this deep way. Are there any parting words that you have for your students or for other acupuncturists? <laughs> No, um, <laughs> I wasn't that. Uh, gee, uh, just, just be curious. I don't know. Just keep learning. Just be open. Just know that there's more. Just know it goes deeper. There's never. You could study for three lifetimes and never cover it all. So, um, just keep going deeper. I think that's wonderful. I think that's exactly what we need to hear because I think I've, I've seen a lot of people kind of feel like they're done and they know everything. I've seen that 
pretty prevalently. And I, I think that's always a dangerous attitude, no matter what profession you're in. I felt that, I felt that when I, after I graduated in 88, and then pretty soon I was bored with it. And at the same time, I had met a feng shui and astrology teacher, and I started really focusing on that. And actually, through him was the way I started studying Chinese, which is a whole other story. But once I started studying Chinese, then I got out a few medical books of, you know, old Chinese. I was never interested in modern. And I rediscovered the medicine and then I forgot the feng shui and astrology <laughs> and just, like got so obsessed with the medicine. Mm -hmm. So I really think it's easy to be bored when all you read is CAM and Giovanni. Yes. Um, and to go deeper, you need to put a little effort into it. And I think sometimes people don't want to put a lot of effort. They just want someone to tell them all the interesting stuff. But yes. reading more books takes effort, but it's so, it's like mining and you find these chunks of gold. Um, but if you don't get out your pick and start mining, uh. you're going to reach the chunks of gold. Yes. But what you're talking about too is going to change you. It's yes. like really allowing these things to transform you. And I that's, totally yeah. And that's what makes you a scholar. Yeah. Thank you so much, Lorraine. Lorraine Wilcox, author, professor, translator. Thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it. It was fun. Thank you.